0: Welcome. Today we're talking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the document adopted by the United Nations in December of 1948. We're going to talk about some of the ideas and some of the steps that led up to the drafting of the document. We'll talk about the actual drafting process, some of the people and some of the delegates of various nations involved, and then we'll talk about the response to the document in the years and in the decades following, and we will also give uh, an analysis from an objectivist perspective. Here to help me disentangle some of the legal and uh, international implications is uh, my friend James Valiant. James, how are you doing today? I'm quite well. Hope you are too, Nicholas. I am. I am. And I think a, a good place to start in talking about the United Nations and the Declaration of Human Rights is to begin with Franklin D. Roosevelt and his Four Freedoms speech, which he gave, it was an address he gave to the nation in December of 1941. Now this was 11 months before Pearl Harbor, before the United States actually entered the war. But the purpose of this address, the the purpose behind uh, FDR's Four Freedoms was to lay out the basic principles of human rights that all nations, that all human beings should agree to. And the, the list of four freedoms is very interesting. So it begins with freedom of speech. We can, all, we can all agree with that. Freedom of worship. Okay, or freedom of religion. Yeah, that's fine. Freedom from fear. Okay, that's a little bit uh, uh, hard to understand. And then freedom from want. Okay, well, now we're already in very problematic territory. Uh, the reason we're starting here was because the these the four freedoms... Uh, FDR's Four freedoms were actually incorporated into the preamble, the preamble of the eventual document that was adopted seven years later. So uh, James, just as a laid the foundation here, can we talk a little bit about Franklin D. Roosevelt, the Four Freedoms, and how this framework eventually led to the document itself, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights itself.
1: Well, we were discussing uh, in a recent podcast uh, the, uh, emer- the development of, uh, for example, the International Red Cross and uh, the Geneva Conventions. And there had been long, obviously, before the 1940s and the advent of the United Nations, um, an international concerted effort to protect prisoners of war, uh, prisoners of conscience, Uh, uh, get people uh, the health care they might need out on the battlefield. And so there were international organizations attempting to create an international protocol uh, among nations that would respect uh, a certain set of minimal rights. Um, And uh, they weren't as corrupt in terms of asserting uh, uh, rights as this came out to be. But of course, the United States, in an effort to turn the world into a more moral than uh, just place it began with frankly uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson in World War one uh, he he the, these progressive uh, types wanted to uh, you know make the world safe for democracy to you know to, uh, they had these grander ambitions and Woodrow Wilson one of his grander ambitions was the League of Nations uh, which the United States did not join <laughs> uh, but which was basically his idea and the first real, uh, international organization of proto-United Nations. Of course, it was a disastrous failure. It prevented the rise, that did not prevent the rise, most notoriously did not prevent the rise of totalitarianism uh, all over the world or World War II from breaking out. And you can uh, tell- I can't, that-
0: I can't resist inserting one uh, fun fact. The idea for a League of Nations apparently originally came from Immanuel Kant from one of his uh, political, which which Woodrow Wilson was, I a, was a, interested in Kant's writings, and that he, that's where he got that idea.
1: He was an intellectual. He was yeah. the president of Princeton University before he became the governor of New Jersey and president of the United States. He was an intellectual. He was a progressive. He was the first great progressive Democrat um, uh, um, president in the United States. And, but the League of Nations, uh, idealistic as it was, well, in its sense, now get that idealistic in its sense, uh, it was an utter failure utter failure in preventing world war or totalitarianism. Um, and you can see it already in FDR's head, uh, the idea of this already, as you pointed out, this was before US entry into the into World War II. He's talking about the free basic freedoms that all the world should recognize, including these ridiculous, uh, you know, anti-concept uh, applications of rights that you just went through. Well, his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, was... Uh, uh, Again, one of these, quote, and I'm going to put it in quote, idealists who believed that uh, when the war ended, especially in the wake of the Holocaust and the horrors that were learned about Nazi Germany, that uh, we should try again with one of these international organizations, the United Nations, and that they, and one of the very first things the United Nations did was to adopt, um, Not, I mean, no one voted against it of the original member nations. The majority, vast majority voted for it, some abstained, uh, but to get this internationally recognized statement of rights, which is of course an abomination, an utter abomination uh, uh, when it comes to rights. It's the destruction of the concept of rights. It's a joke in the first place because there's no government to uh, enforce it. There's no philosophical basis given for rights. What are rights? Why do people need them? what is the the actual objective basis for rights? With a poor understanding of rights, with no real definition of rights, they incorporate these vague and talk about vague pseudo-concepts that come from People like FDR and his Four Freedoms speech, into, as you say, built into the preamble. Freedom from fear, freedom from want are actually terms that are used in this Declaration of Rights that Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of FDR, uh, got in, uh, uh, got it passed in the 1940s from one of the very first sessions of the United Nations. Now, I would ask you to consider the history of the world since it was adopted by the United Nations. Did it prevent Soviet tyranny? Did it prevent gulags and psychiatric hospitals and forced labor in the Soviet Union? Decade after decade, did it, for, did it uh, uh, prevent Idi Amin in Uganda or Pol Pot in Cambodia? Did it prevent uh, North Korea from still being what North Korea is today? Did it prevent uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran from coming into being and, and the start hanging sex criminals, you know like homosexuals or women who show an inch of skin, uh, get uh, they get put in prison and mysteriously die? So uh, it has done zero to enforce to help the actual cause of real human rights, and it has done so not merely because it doesn't have a, the correct philosophical foundation, but because it is actually an assault on rights by having those cons by combining a, a, an idea that you might, like you say, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the idea we have freedom of conscience. And it, there is this idea. See, the, the concept of rights was stolen, was stolen by the progressives in the 20th century. The concept of individual rights was created by liberals like John Locke and enforced for the first time in reality in the English and American legal systems, uh, you know, a little even before John Locke, we've got the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and the English Bill of Rights that that followed that. You've got the American Revolution and the American Constitution and Bill of Rights that followed that. And you've got classical liberals defending that kind of individual rights. Part of this conception, if I could just uh, make a, a, a side note, is that the only alternative to slavery in some form are individual property rights. So was the argument of John Locke, okay, without that understanding, without that fundamental understanding of what a right is, far better in the Locke and American Founding Fathers conception of it, but you see this, it's a moral concept, it's like I keep using this word idealist, idealistic, because it was a source of moral idealism, it had to be stolen and corrupted by the progressives, and I mean progressives who are both from the Republican and Democratic parties in my own country, by the way. They stole the concept of rights, corrupted it altogether, applied it to places where it didn't belong, uh, said people had a right to uh, material sustenance. Freedom from fear, what's that? How can that possibly be? Freedom from an emotion? have a natural emotion that I'm going to feel that look if I you know if I walk out and you know it's a rainy day and I'm not dressed properly, I'm going to feel a degree of fear. <laughs> can they honestly prevent people from experiencing fear uh, in reality? That's an assault on the the uh, very concept of rights because what it does is it detaches rights from any kind of realistic application, from any objective meaning. There's no way you can object make an objective definition or come to some kind of factual understanding of what rights are, if you have something so absurd as freedom from fear built into your very uh, uh, concept. Freedom from want, freedom from want. You know, I don't know any multimillionaires who are free from want, (laughs) it is absolutely a bizarre, absurd. And when you attack rights like that, what you've done is you've done worse than giving us the, I mean, There is nothing worse than a bad defense of a good idea. And uh, the defenses of individual rights were not sound. It is true, we needed Ayn Rand. John Stuart Mill was not there, it was not the hero of defense of individual rights. We needed Rand desperately to give us this moral foundation. But it's not merely the absence of the moral foundation, it's what they call rights, which undermines and destroys all other rights. For if we have a right to freedom from fear, freedom from want then surely that implies some form of enslavement somebody has got to work somebody's got to do something somebody's got to provide you this absence of fear this absence of want and so there's a sort of you know it I know the distinction between slavery, say, and the welfare state, but there is a kind of involuntary servitude that is implied by those rights, even as another, they talk out of both sides of the mouth, even in another section of this Declaration of Rights, they say there can be no slavery or involuntary servitude. It is... The, what do you, the, call, what do you call income tax, Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the if I, if I can just give you some sense of the nonsensical rights that are enshrined in um, this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 23 reads, number one, everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. You've got a right to be protected from unemployment and minimal uh, work conditions. What are those minimal work conditions? Might they uh, differ from country to country depending on what they can actually afford and what the context is? And who's going to support that? Who's going to pay for that? Again, every, number two, everyone without any discrimination has the right to equal pay for equal work. Well, there's no such thing as equal work. Everyone does it different. Anyone who's ever had a job knows that two people with the same job description, they're not doing equal work. (laughs) The idea is inherently non-objective, but equal work for equal pay. Um, Everyone who works has a right to, to just and favorable remuneration, ensuring for himself and his family an existence worthy of human dignity and supplemented, if necessary, by other means of social protection. Now, what the hell does that mean? And who's going to pay for that? And again, this vague nonsense about rights destroys the meaning of rights themselves. So the real right that you have, Nicholas, not to be tortured, not to be enslaved, not to be imprisoned by your government without due process, those are or not to be murdered by someone else. Those rights you see are on the same plane as these vague rights to be free from want, to have a minimum income, to have favorable work conditions.
0: Also, uh, there, one of the... <laughs> One of the articles is the right to education. There's uh, the right to healthcare. Those are all included. Now, just for those of our among our viewers who are not familiar with the, the background to why the declaration took the particular form it did, let's just very briefly fill in some of the context. So the United Na- Nations was chartered towards the end of the war, uh, towards the end of 1945. And then in 1947, this committee was set up. To draft a Declaration of Human Rights, Eleanor Roosevelt, as you pointed out, was made the chairperson of this committee. Already a very huge red flag. Uh, so the the principal drafter, or the principal early drafter of the Declaration, was a Canadian jurist named John Peters Humphrey. He did a, a lot of the earlier work. Then later on, a Frenchman, uh, Rene Cassin, was brought in. He basically brought the document into its final form. But there was also input from delegates from several other nations, including China, Chile, Lebanon, uh, I believe uh, the Soviet Union, and, and several other countries. Now, it's interesting, to so over the, during this two-year process, 1947-1948, uh, there were a lot of debates and disagreements behind the scenes. So, for example, uh, the idea that the Declaration should enshrine so-called social, economic, and cultural rights that actually came from the Chilean delegate. They specifically wanted like you, you mentioned the right to work, the right to a certain basic income, the right to health care, etc. And then uh, you know the, the, the declaration all, I'm surprised that they were actually able to agree when you when you consider the, the diversity of opinion, of conflicting opinions of, com- of conflicting philosophical frameworks among the, the individuals who were mm-hmm. involved in drafting and giving feedback on the declaration.
1: Yeah, well, you can see how, how far uh, the West had dropped in its understanding of rights. If the United States and Great Britain are all on board with this idea that's perfectly acceptable to the socialist countries of the world, uh, there should have been some, some red flag going off. But then again, Eleanor Roosevelt and FDR were friendly to the idea of government protections. They gave America the new deal The the, the Social Security system, for example, retirement insurance, and that was the beginning, really the beginning of the American welfare state. They were very much in favor of a kind. It's no accident that now people are going to maybe get a little offended by what I'm about to say. It's no accident that Hitler and Stalin and FDR are all contemporaries. It is no accident that Mao took over China in the late 40s. It is no accident that Great Britain went fully socialist in the 1950s, at least economically. Um, No accident at all. In the middle of the 20th century, the concept of rights as individual sanction for freedom had been completely destroyed and replaced with this vague undefined notion they stole, and just like they stole the word liberal from us. So they stole the concept of rights from us because it's a moral concept. It appealed to idealists. So you have a right not to be hungry, you see. You have a right to an education, don't you see? You have a right to participate in culture, don't you see? Um, all of these, these positive rights, which have to come at someone else's expense, uh, they were happy to go along with. Uh, the concept of the Soviet Union was no problem for FDR for uh, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt they were it was FDR who normalized relations with the Soviet Union when previous presidents after the the Bolshevik revolution would not recognize them no 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 they were the the great ideal they were our allies uh, members of the United States Senate and House of Representatives were praising Joe Stalin through most of the 40s through most of the 40s until the, you know, they began to get everyone's attention by stealing the nuclear bomb and so forth and dropping, you know, Churchill's Iron Curtain across Europe. It was only then that America started to get attention and not think Uncle Joe is this great guy. Literally, these people thought that social, that uh, these uh, socialist rights, these this uh, positive right to, a, to earn a living, to, to have a decent living, to have decent housing, they thought those were actually, Rights. They did not understand the concept of rights and in the process destroyed the act, any actual meaning for rights. Uh, that's the only way I can I can put it.
0: Yeah. Now you pointed out that most of the at the time, the member states of the United Nations at the time voted in favor of the declaration. Now, today the United Nations has something like 192 member states. At that time, they only had 58. Now, of right. those 58, 48 voted in favor. Of adopting the declaration. It was in December of 1948. And then there were 10 states that either abstained or didn't participate sure. in the vote for whatever reason, but huge majority actually supported it. Yeah. And and it's interesting, Now it's interesting if we look at and in a moment I want to look at some of the criticisms, some of the international criticisms of the declaration. But before we get that, can you just very briefly tell us what kind of legal force does this document have? How binding is it on the various member
1: nations? Well, that's easy. Zero, none. There is no government to enforce it. See, if, if you say to yourself, someone has rights, there has to be to go with it. For it to be meaningful, there has to be an enforcement mechanism. If rights are a moral concept, then who are the uh, guardians of those rights? If force is what we need uh, protection against, where is this monopoly force agency that's going to protect us, uh, protect our rights? No such thing.
0: That's why we we need a one world
1: government, right? Uh, For a single neck. And you can really see from this corruption of rights and the inclusion of horrible dictatorships like Stalin. Right from the start, Stalin's Soviet Union was included now. Think, that's uh, uh, obviously an organization that doesn't have the first clue what rights are. Any uh, joining in with them about the enforcement of rights is going to be a destruction of rights, is going to be against our concept in the West, our liberal concept of rights necessarily, um, and uh, what can you say? You know, Ayn Rand in her essay on man's rights, uh, reproduced in *Capitalism and an Ideal* and in *The Virtue of Selfishness*, she had a really great point. She was just like Gresham's law in economics, where uh, bad money drives out good. So a bad concept of rights drives out any valid concept of rights. I would really urge people to read uh, that article Ayn Rand wrote on uh, man's rights. Um, It's a brilliant one. And she nails this very point right here. It is meaningless. It is meaningless when you include those kind of rights. In fact, what it's designed to do is destroy the actual concept of rights. Because if rights are to material goods that someone else has to provide for me, there's no objective measure of these rights. There's an insatiable maw that will always demand more and more and more and more and more. We're never ever, it's never an awareness of context. It's never an awareness that someone's work had to provide that material uh, sustenance that someone else claims a right to. It's no different in effect, theoretically, than theft or even in one sense, slavery. I am very aware of the difference between uh, theft and taxes say, or between slavery and uh, you know, chattel slavery. And, uh, but if you look at some of these nations like the Soviet Union, there is no distinction. In my view, they're all slaves. If you look at the people of Venezuela today, they're slaves. They're slaves, they're slaves to their government, or they have to be working outside the system altogether, leave the grid entirely, uh, or leave the country entirely uh, to operate. So when you're sanctioning slavery, when you're sanctioning the greatest violators of individual rights in human history, and you're getting them on board with this uh, proposal to support human rights, uh, you're in fact uh, becoming an agent of rights destruction an agent of rights destruction, any cooperation with the United Nations, any cooperation with a, a rights statement that includes say the Soviet Union uh, is necessarily going to be violative of rights. It's going to, look at what look like I say, consider the decades after 1948 in the Soviet Union from 1958, 68, 78, 88, that's 40 plus years of slavery if you, if anyone thinks that, for, for example, we were signatories, we, 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 the Russians, we, we're enforcing these rights, we're, we're protectors of these rights. To put up with that sham by itself is a joke. Um, but there is no enforcement mechanism. There is no way yeah, you can say. To so essence, you,
0: yeah, that's really yeah. the essence of Ayn Rand's condemnation of the United Nations that it provides the moral sanctions for states that conduct various acts of tyranny and enslavement. Now now for the punchline, let's talk about some of the international criticisms of the Universal Declaration. So I know there were there were a lot of concerns from South Africa that they saw the, the, the Universal Declaration as a threat to apartheid. They, they didn't want to adopt the, or uh, accept the document because they thought it would you know throw a, a monkey wrench in their uh, apartheid machine. So that's one thing. Uh, there was a lot of criticism among Islamic nations Freedom of religion. Well, they didn't like that because that's contrary to Sharia law. Equality of women. They didn't like that because that's a threat to Sharia law That or that contradicts Sharia law. Uh, there were a lot of Asian countries, a lot of East Asian countries who thought that the declaration was it was too Western. It was too individualistic that, you know, we need to recognize the fact that the individual finds his identity through the collective, through the culture. So we need to, we need something that's more collectivistic.
1: Uh, so there have been there have been attempts so cultures to have rights. Don't you know, yeah, Nicholas, cultures, cultures have, have rights. rights. And so the and so the idea, you know, especially to meet the objection, the last two sets of objections you've met, the, there was sort of a response that said, no, 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 no. Of course, you have your right to your culture. And if that culture means hanging homosexuals and arresting women for not wearing their burqa, well, then that's your culture that's your culture. So cultures have rights and you have a right to, you know, enforce a theocracy if you want, uh, because that's your culture, your collective right. And so again, you see, when you've replaced these collect, when you collectivize these rights, you've destroyed the right. You've absolutely destroyed the right. It is against, as Ayn Rand points out, it is against the group that we need rights. It's individuals who are the choosing agents. It's individuals alone who could have rights. once you go down that path of collectivized rights, which these criticisms actually caused uh, ideologues to go down exactly that path to say that, it, for example, Muslim nations, gosh, after all, don't they have a right to their culture? Yeah, the, the, there's a tension here, granted, because the initial uh, statement of rights said that there has to be sexual and racial equality. So for example, South Africa, said we wanna be racist. Well, the, the, the universal declaration of rights says no, racial equality, you can't discriminate on the basis of race, religion, gender, sex. And so if you're building that in, obviously uh, a racist apartheid authoritarian nations like South Africa are going to object. We're and sure. notice yeah. that it wasn't this declaration of rights that had any impact in bringing down the apartheid government uh, at all. None, zero, zip, zilch. This sort of stuff from the UN and this Declaration of Rights has had not only has it not done anything to protect the world against horrific dictatorships, which still exist in this world today, but it has undermined the very concept of rights, so that our ability to morally criticize the Soviet Union, North Korea, Iran, wherever else tyranny exists, is under is necessarily undermined. And of course, whatever feeble, you know, that you asked to have enforcement mechanism. Well, the UN adopted this. And they say, well, they're enshrining this. And they urge all nations to educate. There's even a part of it that says, we urge all nations to spread these ideas, educate their people on individual rights. Now, again, well, there's, there's, there's even a,
0: an international, human. It's, I think it's December 10th, is International <laughs> Human Rights Day, where we're supposed to celebrate this, uh, this document, this, this, which is, which, in fact, as you pointed out, really amounts to a perversion of human rights. Now, exactly. uh, I see we only have a couple of minutes left. So let's just briefly check in with our producer, Daniel. Do we have any comments or super chats from our viewers? We have a super chat from Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, also super chat from Wes. Thank you so much also. And the super chat from Christopher. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you all you. very much for your support. So uh, let's wrap up. Now, I should mention that uh, I think it was sometime in the late 60s that one of the drafters of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was granted, I think it might have been uh, the Frenchman, René Cassin, was granted the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts on, 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 in this document. And that's what James and I are going to talk about probably next week. We're going to have a little discussion of the Nobel Prizes and specifically the Nobel Peace Prize, whether it's something mm. legitimate or whether it's BS. Uh, you, you you uh take a guess uh anyway thank you very much uh thank you very much James for your uh, insights and contributions on this topic uh thank you to our viewers and subscribers for your support Daniel any final announcements before we wrap up today in a couple of minutes uh, at 6 p.m. UK time we have the reality show on should britain rejoin the eu a link for that is in the chat and then at 10 p.m. UK time we have Life on Earth with Robert and Amy Naser on the top five ways you're not selfish enough. Ooh, sounds intriguing.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, geez, and they're asking so for so our, so our audience as always. And, yeah. Well, and, thank you. Uh, always great.
0: Yeah, I look forward to our, uh, hopefully next week, our upcoming discussion on the Nobel Peace Prize. And we also have to do that episode on uh, the death penalty as well. We can maybe do that the following week. So uh, lots of excellent stuff coming up on this channel, uh, the ARC UK YouTube channel. So I look forward to seeing James, look forward to seeing all of you in the very near future. Until then, I wish you all the best of premises. Take care. And also super chat from Jonathan. Thank you so much.